the British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to the British TV podcast, show number 79. I'm Ryan in Seattle. I'm Chrissy in Seattle. I'm Kelly in Seattle. Hello, Kelly. Who's Hello. this? Someone brand new? <laughs> We've lured her in here. It's taken me six months to... Uh, uh, working on her because I've you were a big fan of Misfits yes. I saw on Twitter. Yes, you like lots of British TV. Tell us about the British TV shows that you like. Misfits, Being Human, Doctor Who. Obviously, I think that's what pulled me back into British TV in the first place. Oh, a lot of the panel shows I've gotten into over the past few years. Um, so, Doctor Who is your entry level drug. Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> That worked for me, yeah, just 30 years ago, but that definitely was something that was like, oh, I like this, what else would I like? Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Well, this week's show, we have reviews, news, what's on British TV this week, shows running in the United States, any DVD releases. Alrighty. So we're going to have some spoilers now, so if you've not seen the third season of Being Human yet, skip ahead. My mom watched it. She was very sad. She said, you didn't warn me it was going to be sad. Was it preordained that it was going to be sad? I kind of assume that at some point, Aiden Turner went to them and said, hey, look, you know, my film career is taken off. I'm going to be in The Hobbit. You need to write me out of the show. Or was that part of the plan all, to, all around? Does anybody know? I think it was the former, that he was going to be in New Zealand for two years, most yeah, I, of the year. I, I thought it perhaps should have been part of the plan all along because I didn't really think his character could be redeemed after a certain point. I think it definitely happened because of The Hobbit. That's what I thought, too. I mean, after the massacre last year, you know, he really did sort of cross a line. I've watched a lot of vampire shows, you know, Dark Shadows and Angel, where they try to make some atone for their sins. And I'm right shaking my, my fist there. Uh, <laughs> make them a good guy again. But, yeah, I think he, he, he went too far. Yeah, definitely. Well, the online assumption I was reading was that that last episode was right when he said he was thinking of leaving. So they might have had a completely different story arc in mind for him, but they started it at the end of last season with the Box Tunnel 20. Well, they had to leave town because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did it feel rushed to you since you had just watched it? Like, did it, you feel like his death was, you know, something that... No. I was I, like, I, let's hurry up I and do felt, this. I felt he'd been really vague in interviews. When they asked if he was, are you, are you coming back next season? He was being kind of vague there, so that I had that inkling. But once Lacey Turner in the no. first episode says, there's a wolf-shaped bullet coming mm-hmm. for you, they're kind of preordaining something bad's going to happen, don't you think? Yeah, but, you know, they can always get out of that. Things aren't always, it turned out to not be. Yeah, she's like, I made it up. It, it, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it could, it could have, I always thought from the beginning, it could not mean that. I was just trying to watch it based on the assumption that he could or could not be staying. So I was hoping to be more surprised at the end yeah. when he did, you know, leave, depart in the way he did. You know, there's other ways to bring them back if they do another flashback episode like they did in season two with Herrick when they went back to the 60s and there he was. With Mitchell in the Roaring Sixties. But I don't know if they'd do that again, having done it once. It certainly sets them on a new course now because you've got two werewolves, a ghost, a guest star werewolf if he comes in. You know, Adam's lurking around out there. Did you see Becoming Human? Um, The spinoff thing? 
I didn't bother to watch it, but I do. Yeah, I know oh. that Adam's out there. Yeah, and then well, you have the cold ones introduced now. The old ones, Lee Ingleby. Yeah, I know that's going to be pretty exciting. Chris and I are big fans of his. We did his show on him way back when, and, mm-hmm. and so a chance to see him is always very exciting. Yeah, I think they're gonna. That whole group of vampires is probably gonna add an interesting element to it. I don't know if it's gonna devolve into just werewolves versus vampires. Hopefully not. Hopefully they'll bring someone new into the house and into the you, show. You've seen that movie? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure there have been this one or a few. Underworld. <laughs> oh, that's true. Underworld. Any other comments about being human? No, the writing was great all, all season. Uh, yeah, I wasn't happy. You know, I wasn't happy with the ending. I was pretty. But I, because of uh, how it was done, I just thought. Um, well, did you were you upset I, that George was the guy who actually ended up doing it? No, I thought George might be the one all along. My biggest problem, I think, was the um, Annie Mitchell relationship. It wasn't developed very well um, at first. Annie was like this clingy, needy woman. She is a clingy, needy woman. That's her character. Yeah, not. I guess so, but not. She'd been growing. Her character had been growing the whole few seasons so i was getting more and more interested in uh her character growing a little stronger and then it just sort of went back to her being kind of weak and needy i don't feel like they were ever really in love and so it wasn't an emotional ending for me i really and and my daughter said the same thing that she was like they how were they deep the love of each other's lives did not feel that way at all and so there was no a lot not a lot of emotion there for me when he you know was finally killed. I didn't really feel that sad. I felt like he deserved it. <laughs> I would agree that the, their relationship was the weakest part there because mm-hmm. it's not anywhere near as fun as watching Nina and George doing right. it. I mean, you believe they're in love. You care about what they're doing. Yeah. The Mitchell and Annie thing did seem a little bolted on. Well, that was my other problem was the, the Nina. They could have, I mean, Nina was dying in the hospital and that whole scene with her and Herrick in the kitchen was incredible and uh, really moving and I wanted to see more of that. I think I would have felt a lot more emotion worrying about Nina's death than I would have. I cared a lot more about that and what was going on there than Mitchell. I don't know why. (laughs) I'd like to see next year them really pump up Annie and make her more of a a character who makes things happen rather than a character who reacts to things. Yes. Agreed. For sure. Because they've done that with George. My slight criticism of the first season was I thought George was very namby-pamby. He just, he didn't know what he wanted or he couldn't get it. And then he finally started standing up for himself and being the kind of guy who who could be that and and a character who made things happen. And I think they need now to let Annie do that. Yeah. And hopefully she'll be given that opportunity now with maybe with Mitchell out of the way and she can... She's really going to challenge herself to do something with her life or her non-life. <laughs> well, I really liked the season quite a bit. I just thought it was humming on all, all cylinders, having you know, only eight episodes and knowing, okay, we're going to go from this point to this point here, and mm-hmm. good self-contained stories, lots of uh, interesting guest stars, uh, you know, the twist of bringing Herrick back, the whole thing of him being up in the attic. Uh, yeah, that was definitely kind of creepy, and uh, I didn't really, you know, I, I sort of was... With Nina not quite knowing whether to trust him or not, sometimes I didn't think he was really faking it. I, I loved the whole season up until the last episode. Just I tend to be super critical of stuff that is supposed to tug at my heartstrings and doesn't. So I, I didn't care for the find the way it ended, but I did love the whole season. So was it because of just the you didn't think it was working because of the you know the tragedy of the great love being broken up? 
just you're like, and, who and, cares? Well, and yeah, and George, it, more. I feel like George and Mitchell's friendship was even more important than his relationship with Annie. And if that had been played up more, it was kind of George cried and was obviously very sad. But I don't know. They didn't have a lot of scenes together this year. They did, did they? that. That's exactly what yeah. made my point. They didn't, and um, their friendship, their bromance was really epic, and it, it would have. I feel like it was so hard for George to do that, and they, it wasn't played up enough. To be fair, George was distracted by the fact that his girlfriend is pregnant. And oh, they jumped the shark so early on with that, though. I'm like, really? Werewolf baby? <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. You can't tell me you've seen that before. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, but, I mean, anybody getting pregnant a little ways into a series is kind of like, okay, what's wrong with this that they have to throw a pregnancy in? I think it is going to be really, really interesting, for sure. It was an interesting twist. I like the actress who plays uh, Nina quite a bit. I really hope she doesn't give birth during a full moon. That's a good point. <laughs> that would be quite alarming. <laughs> or the full moon triggers labor. <laughs> well, it's interesting in the, in the being human verse that the full moon is technically only one day. Because yes. usually in werewolf movies, it's always a four-day period. Is there? Well, uh, that's that's my memory, is that there'd be trope. this period of full moonishness. And then they would go back to being normal. But in being human, they say, nope, it's only one night only, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Of course, they still have daylight vampires, which drives me nuts. Yeah, that's kind of common now, though. They're like <sighs> destroyed the myth of the sun destroying vampires. So. That's why I'm still a fan of True Blood. Nighttime <laughs> vampires, please. Of course, <laughs> yeah. they have a much bigger budget than you know, BBC3 does, but... It's probably easier to film during the day, so they're like, we're just going to make these vampires tolerant to sunlight. <laughs> I have a feeling that is very much the reason. And it's completely a budget thing, because, yeah, nighttime shooting is very expensive. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to another series, and again, spoiler warning, spoiler warning, uh, Secret Diary of a Call Girl. Right, that just started here, didn't it? It did. So, so if people are watching on Showtime and don't want to hear the, the twist ending where Belle gives birth to a werewolf, oh, wait, she doesn't. <laughs> Stop listening now. <laughs> yeah, you might want to skip ahead. I inferred from your tweet, Kelly, that you were not happy with the way the series ended. Oh, of course not. I know. Uh, I was disappointed too. No, I'll be honest with you. I, yeah, I, don't I, think I, I kind really of like, and I saw your tweet before I actually watched it, which unfortunately is a big spoiler. But I didn't know you were going to do that. Uh, but then I watched. Did it I went, say something spoilerish? No, I thought no, I was big. Yeah. You know, oh, that's what you're going to do. And so I kind of was waiting for. Oh, something. Go they're going to do something goofy or bad. Mm -hmm. And so when it happened, I was like, Oh yeah, huh? Okay. And it's kind of lame. <laughs> Yeah. So I was agreeing with you. I mean, okay, you just, yeah. No, you didn't. You didn't say anything specific, but it just sort of like, oh. No, I think I said something with lots of curse words in it, probably. <laughs> and 140 characters. Yeah, I can fit a lot in there. But yeah, what did you think, Chrissy? Uh, I thought it just sort of fizzled out in the end. I felt Ben was best out of it. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. You didn't want to see Love Conquers All? No. Because it was just it was going to be unresolved business the whole time. I no. Because there wasn't going to be another series. I couldn't picture them 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the line together. So, Well, of course, it depends if this is, you know, this whole creation they've created of uh, Belle mm -hmm. as opposed to what really happened to Brooke McNanty. Right, who, which was, she was, was 14 months. A, yeah. And now, do you know about her new blog? Um, no, but it's kind of interesting because she, she did something before she came out as being Brooke. She wrote two books saying this is true, this is what happened to me. What this is, and the second book ends with her giving up being a call girl and going on vacation and doing some soul searching. But then she wrote a third book called Playing the Game, 
which was about herself and her friends, but it was fiction. And the only time I know of that being done before was the Donnie Brasco. I wrote it down in my hand. Joe Pistoni, who really did go undercover as Donnie Brasco. But then after the book came out, he started writing fictionalized versions with Joe Pistoni as a fictional character in these FBI books. And she did the same thing with her third book. So that was just really odd to me to say, well, this is what might have happened if I had stayed being a call girl. And then all her all her friends who she's are real people that she put in the first two books that she fictionalizes what all the adventures they have is really strange. I don't think it came out here, but it's called Playing the Game. She's working on a new book and it's called Sexonomics and she's got a blog now. And I looked at it and it was very interesting. And, and she has been kind of upset that a lot of feminists have said, well, how dare you say prostitution's okay? You know, don't you know it degrades women? And she's kind of saying, hey, look, here's what I think is okay. And here's what I don't think is okay. And obviously she's a very sex positive person. You know, Dan Savage refers people to her uh, books all the time. And so it was possible in the series that they could have had Belle retire. And then she could have gone off and lived with Ben. I mean, that, based on what happened in real life, I was thinking, well, that's certainly a way the series could have gone. But if they're going to just say, yeah, she's going to just stay in the game, then, yeah, maybe she needs to cut all her ties to men. Well, the Belt character in the show, too, is, is way much more into being a call girl. For Brooke Magnanti, it was just sort of kind of a, a way to make a lot of money while she was working on her Ph.D., and then she could give it up. So they changed yeah, they've, pretty they've, much uh, everything. Yeah. There's maybe three or four lines from one of the books in the whole series, and none of the storylines or any of that, other than writing a book. But by the time the book was out, she was no longer a call girl. So, Yeah, and I was sort of left with the impression that she wasn't even sure whether she was going to stay in the profession or not. I kind of didn't expect there to be a happy ending. I, I think throwing that detective, that other love interest in there at the last minute, yeah, that felt like it was missing it. five or six episodes yeah. worth of developing it. It's uh, like they just meet, and all of a sudden he wants to be... Yeah, it's... and he's, like, dangling her off rooftops, and mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this guy, but it's not... Like, it. it it's... It was, she was supposed to be choosing between her profession and Ben, not her profession and Ben and another man. Um, that just seemed to complicate it unnecessarily. And, you know, it was a really sad ending, of course. And them saying that you know, this is it. We can't continue our friendship. This like super close friendship they'd had all their lives. It's like, if, if we end this, we end everything. It's just kind of, it's a really secret diary is a really lighthearted show. It's a really fun, rompy yeah. show. Oh, yeah. And to end on like that heavy of a note. Especially on the first episode, she sort of predicted that would happen that if they did go back and try their old romance again and it failed, they would lose each other for good. And that's what happened. Yeah. Or at least for five or ten years or whatever. And that's a, but I, probably for good. Poor Ben. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're right, Kelly. It was a, it was a very frothy show. I, I watched that program to see Billy Piper's smile, her great funny asides to the camera. Right. The, you know, kind of crazy things they would have happen to her. I mean, I, I never liked the theme tune to that uh, show because it always seemed to be, you know, kind of burlesque kind of thing and not really emblematic of the show, the way, the, you know, the light tone of the show. Mm-hmm. I don't think it set the tone very well. But the show itself, you know, I, I really, yeah, I did enjoy it. And then just kind of, boom, at the end there. I think, yeah, you're right. It was a, a really strange tone change. Yeah. And looking, uh, you know, of course, it was trending on Twitter in the UK and looking at the hashtags. And it seemed like most of 
Uh, probably at least 60%, 70% of the people tweeting about it were not happy either and felt a little, you know, like it, like it should have, for such a lighthearted show, it ended kind of dramatically and sadly. Although Billy Piper does cry really well. You got to admire that. <laughs> Everything she, that girl can cry and let her mascara run all over the place and not care. I, I like that about her. Chrissy and I joke about the, the gallons of mascara they must bring into the makeup department. Oh, yeah, for the same on Doctor Who, Billy, yes. Billy and her mascara. <laughs> <laughs> but she turned out really good. I think she carried that entire show and, and did a great job. And it'll be interesting to see what she does next. Absolutely. It's a really hard to successfully break the fourth wall like that that she constantly did with her little asides to the camera and uh, do it so well, I think. And there's not... I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of characters on comedy shows. Miranda. That really. Miranda. Did you watch that? No. Oh, with Miranda Hart? No. Oh. I, I think I it's on, might be on my list of things to watch, on my uh, vague radar of she, shows she's I need to see. She won, like, every comedy <laughs> award last year, and we've been showing it at our local uh, video meetings, and people just can't get it off. My wife thought the last episode she saw was the funniest thing she'd ever seen, where they're basically... Miranda and her mom, played by Patricia Hodge, are stuck in a psychiatrist's office, and the psychiatrist is played by Mark Heap. Mm-hmm. And it's just this physical comedy that happens with these two women in this office for half an hour, and the amount of destruction they cause. And my wife just was killing it herself. She thought it was so funny. Oh, I'll have so to watch it. I would have to say yes. But, but the, yeah. the gimmick of Miranda is Miranda Hart is constantly making insights to the camera, okay. just giving a look. Something happens, it's just kind of like, huh? Okay. <laughs> I just did a look there. You can't see it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, Billy Piper did a great thing. Because, you know, we, we, we felt like, you know, she was talking to us. Yes. Yeah. Well, so much for Secret Diary then. So last night, Kelly and I were saw the National Theater's version of Frankenstein Yay. with Johnny Lee Miller and some has-been named Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. Him. I didn't pay much attention to him. <laughs> yeah, I read that the national production of After the Party might be going to Broadway too, which he had done last year and did very well. So maybe we'll see him on Broadway as well while Martin's off sure. gallivanting around New Zealand. Oh, interesting. Well, we saw the version that had Benedict playing the creature, and I probably wouldn't be the only person thinking, oh, I wanted to see him do Victor because, you know, then he'd be this good-looking guy and he'd get the best part, stuff like that. But the creature's got a much better part than Victor does. Oh, definitely. And I was supposed to see both shows, and there was just a comedy of errors, and I did not get to see the Saturday show. From what I've heard from people who've seen both, uh, he, he is a better Victor than Johnny Lee Miller, but they both bring something really special to the creature. So I think he's gotten better reviews, and I, he was amazing, but I really still want to see him as Victor as well. But the creature gets to do a lot more. Well, he's on screen. Oh, he's on, on screen way more. Or on, or on stage, on stage. Say, yeah. yeah, far and, more. And more gets than to I do thought. A lot more stuff. Uh, were you surprised that Victor had that, such a small? Yeah, because I, I, yeah. again, I was thinking. I feel. I feel I'm being ripped off here because I not ripped off, but I, I, I you know, given a choice, I would have gone for the Benedict as Victor thing. But having seen this now, I'm like, oh no, no, no. I, the amount of time he gets to do and the, the great part that that creature has. Yes. I mean, he goes from being literally born on stage in the first five minutes. He's flailing around learning how to walk. Oh, how many bruises he must have. Oh, he injured himself a lot. He was very ill and very injured. I think he fractured or sprained or broke a wrist. And I noticed he did a lot of wrist movements and, you know, strange crawling. And I was just cringing for him. (laughs) And then he learns how to talk and then uh, spends quite a bit of time with the uh, blind man who's played by Carl Johnson, no relation, who plays 
Twister on Lark Rise to Candleford, and I swear he wears the same costume. Oh, really? As yeah. he did in the- <laughs> He's got the same axe, the same costume. He's not blind on Lark Rise to Candleford, but if you've seen that show, you're like, oh, it's Twister! And he's very good. I mean, he's all character actors. I mean, you're in your 70s like that, you're not going to be playing Doctor Who, but, you know, for playing those kind of uh, character roles, he's, he's great at that. The play says that they basically spend an entire year together, and he educates the creature and gets him to read Milton and, you know, speak normally. And tries to convince him to be, you know, join the Fellowship of Man. And, oh, yes, my son and his daughter will welcome you in. And The creature does not like rejection. No. He gets very homicidal when he gets rejected. That's probably his big flaw. Yeah. <laughs> it's understandable that he uh, is extremely sensitive to these things, but the homicides don't go over so well. Frankenstein is just such a great story because you have a guy playing God. He creates this thing and then just wants to disown it and doesn't take responsibility for what it does. And, of course, you could say that's a metaphor for you know having children. You know, how much responsibility do you have for your children, what they go off to? I mean, if we could go back in time and bring back Hitler's parents, you know, could we put them on trial saying, it's your fault you made Hitler? Well, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. In fact, they, they point this out in the, in the play about the fact of the blind man says, well, there's two philosophies. One is you were born with original sin and you're damned no matter what. And the other is that you are born pure. Babies are completely innocent. And it all has to do with what happens to you as you grow up. Mm-hmm. Which is good food for thought. I mean, there's no real answer, of course. You know, philosophers are going to be talking about this for you know thousands of years. We're not going to answer it here on this podcast. Sorry tonight. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but seeing that dramatized on the stage, one of the many brilliant things about Frankenstein of him going to his creator saying, you know, I didn't ask to be born. Here's what I want. He does some terrible things. Yes. And sometimes justified, and sometimes not. It's also, at least in this production, very interesting of how passionate the creature is. You know, he wants to be love. He wants to have love. And Victor doesn't seem to really understand these emotions at all. Yeah. What does Elizabeth see in him? He's a bit of a did fish. Definitely. I, I was wondering if there was some sort of story going on behind the scenes that, so to speak, with them where she, you know, their backstory where she fell in love with him and then he changed. But the, all we see of him is definitely a very cold man. And then ultimately, you know, the creature is the guy who ends up deflowering Elizabeth. Yes. Rather, that was rather unpleasant. <laughs> well, as those scenes are. But you know, uh, he does, yes, unexpected. He does what Victor can't do. Yeah. I mean, how long would Victor and Elizabeth have stayed married if they, you know, assuming there had been no creature business running around there? That would have been a really terrible marriage, I would have thought. Yeah, I don't think uh, Elizabeth would have been a very happy woman at all. And, and uh, she was played beautifully, I really liked. Yes, and Naomi Harris, who yes. has appeared with Benedict Cumberbatch before, they were both in Small Island. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, I don't think they ever had scenes together because he was off stage quite a bit because he was the husband of the woman that ran the boarding house, mm-hmm. and then he disappears for several years during the war, and then he finally ends up coming back. And wasn't actor spotting in uh, British production so much fun to see who's worked with who anyway? Because I think they have a pool of about twelve actors that they just swap mm-hmm. around from show to show. I'm pretty good at doing that. I think that's why Ryan likes me here because they can go what's what, what, what? I'll usually be able to pull a name out. My big worry is we'll have gotten them all. You'll we'll get to podcast Twitter. Okay, we've run out of people to talk about. We have to, we'll have to do them over again now. Because <laughs> <laughs> they sort of scraped the bottom of the room. Well, who haven't we talked about yet? But anyway, that's my problem as a producer. 
the, the production was just amazing. I mean, the, that, the set with the way the things came up and down and in and out. And well, I was very envious of people who actually got to uh, be there in that theater with its history and everything. As soon as I saw it, I was like, Was that oh, the National? Be- the National, yeah. yeah I've been there. Beautiful. Oh, I jealous. saw um, <laughs> a little night music there in the 90s with Judy Dench. That was really good. Oh, yeah. And that the was orchestra wonderful. was kind of up on risers and down around the side. And then this, the stage spins. You know, it was yeah, they theater. had the stage spinning. Yeah, and, that's sort of, yeah. they're known for that. Yeah, so. cool. Well, yeah, the, the set was gorgeous, the lighting, all those lights overhead. And, you know, my friends who did get to see it live, they didn't see the overhead shots that we got to see of the creature being born and trying to learn to walk, which I thought were really, really great to see from that angle. Um, so the overhead uh, shots definitely added something to it. I felt I was there. I mean, just because you get those great close-ups and the, and the way it was cut. And, you know, it's probably better than the theatrical experience because you only get the one point of view and you might not have the best seats in the world. Yeah. It was the way to see it. And, yeah, my wife was kind of like, oh, it's another Frankenstein story. Yeah, I've been there, done that. I know how it ends. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But it was a Frankenstein story with an underworld soundtrack and interpretive dance. Um, <laughs> you don't get that too often. <laughs> I really, I really like the soundtrack. The doctor walking in slow motions with explosions going off behind him, like in the Kenneth Browner version. Or <laughs> oh, yeah, I have seen that. I remember that. <laughs> I just reviewed a couple weeks ago Frankenstein's Wedding that Lacey Turner was in that was done, performed live in Leeds. It all takes place in one night, and they managed to kind of compress all the action in there. And, you know, it's hit some of the same beats. Whereas, you know, the, the stage version, ironically, takes place, you know, over a period of a year. They're in Geneva. They're in or the Orkney Islands. They end up in the Arctic. Wasn't it three years, he said? I thought I thought at the end he said it. The well, well, okay. three years. Um, yeah, because right. he was away from Elizabeth for a year trying to create the bride. Yes. Because he said he had to be at Oxford doing the boring books. He says, oh, I'll, I'll sit and watch you do the books. And he says, well, then I have to go to the Orkney Islands, and it's going to be really terrible. And she says, oh, no, I'll go anyway. I mean, Elizabeth was definitely a keeper. I mean, she seemed like a very kind, compassionate person. Absolutely. And, of course, you, yeah. you're kind of rooting for the creature to kind of accept her offer. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's kind of meant for us to sort of turn on him when he does the awful things that he does to her, yeah. thinking she was doing everything you've always wanted. Did someone to treat you like a person? Yeah. He was not a nice guy. The creature wasn't nice. <laughs> I did not. The ending was kind of. Was that how the? Was that how Frankenstein ends? It, like I, of course, I've read it and seen it a few times, but that ending was a little bizarre to me. With them just sort of going off into the Arctic, and it reminded me a bit of the. If you remember the nineteen like seventy five version, Frankenstein: The True Story, that had David McCollum and uh, uh, Tom Baker's in that. Even and they end up in the Arctic, and I think it, again, it's a very sort of vague ending you're not quite sure okay they so kind of die is. together or at least they're they're together at some point yeah they sort of went off into a giant flash of light together <laughs> it was the brightness of the north pole yeah. but yeah eventually they do sort of become this these two characters are sort of linked in for each other nothing else really matters frankenstein is bound to the creature and the creature is bound to frankenstein they just kind of both keep existing uh, and the actors did say there was a little bit of a behind the scenes beforehand and they said that whichever role they were playing it didn't matter a little bit of one of them would sort of leak into the other's portrayal because the characters were like you said so intertwined and uh there is going to be a a big behind the scenes show supposed to be on channel four the making of this summer so hopefully we'll get to see lots of that because i was really interested in that i wanted that to keep going (laughs) and i have to think this is going to be on dvd eventually yeah, I hope so. We'll demand it. Yes. We'll, we'll, we'll charge <laughs> we'll that part. We want the DVD of those things. I would certainly like to see it again and compare the two versions, see what uh, Benedict as Victor is like. 
Now, who knows, maybe I'd fall in love with it all over again. So, oh, no, he is the perfect victor. I can't even see him. How, how dare they deface that beautiful visage? Yeah, I, I wanted to see him with his glorious hair and his swishy coat. He might have been wearing the rug. He does wear a coat too, very well. He, he wears everything very well, so it's okay. <laughs> so that was a good night. I mean, for me, that was $20 well spent. I can't yes. imagine I'm going to get that kind of value for money for anything else this year. Yeah, I agree. So see it if you can. I don't know why we were like the last people in the world to see it here in Seattle. Literally in Seattle. I mean, I, know. It was, I would have gone to an, you know, an actual live 11 a.m. showing or whatever. I, I, they, uh, it sold out. I mean, there was a rush line. and I, t- I was told I, there I, were tickets available for Saturday's show, though. Oh, there the were. they added okay. at the last minute. Oh, that's right. They, they did add that after. Yeah. Monday was the Monday show was the one that was originally posted. So, yeah, yeah. We all ran out yeah. and bought tickets back in. Uh, when I first December. heard about yeah. it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God, did it come Yeah, no, that was great, great, great theater, and fabulous that they make this available because you know none of us can afford to go to London right now and camp out and see tickets. So yeah, this uh, whole you know, live theater in the or live yeah live theater in the cinema is a, a great uh, gimmick. All right, well I've got some more reviews here shows that are running right now. The first is Candy Cabs. This BBC drama series takes place in a coastal city where a group of women are starting up their cab firm with distinctive pink taxis and female drivers hoping to appeal to women clients. But as the show begins, Sharon, one of the partners, has suddenly died and the rest must decide to whether to carry on without her or pack it in. Jackie, played by former EastEnders Joe Joyner, is the more enthusiastic of the two while Elaine has secretly taken out a second mortgage to finance the business without telling her husband. Meanwhile, Sharon's scuzzy ex-husband returns to the scene, and you'll never guess who he's played by. Who? Yes, it's our favorite scumbag, Paul Kay. You familiar with him? No. In the first episode of Being Human this season, he was the vampire that was taunting McNair and got killed by Tom. Like oh, okay, yeah. Oh, I love him. That was that was a great role and great. I, that was. I, I knew I'd seen him in other things, but like you know, I'm not I'm not so familiar with get the actors' names right away, but I. Yeah, I was hoping he would stick around more. <laughs> he got staked, uh, but a week earlier he played a similar kind of scumbag uh, with bleach blonde hair and Shameless. Mm. And then Chrissy and I have seen him in tons yeah, and tons of stuff. Yeah, he's been in tons of things. I think I think I'm sensing a show uh, about him soonish. Oh, I think we gave a little mini profile of him a while ago, but we can we can talk. Now that he's actually in a show because he's going to be a recurring character on Candy Cabs, I'd like to talk about him because he's definitely the uh, our favorite scumbag. Yep. Or he plays favorite scumbags there. I mean, he's uh, he's the go-to guy for on British TV or playing lowlifes. And as we hear from this scene from the end of episode one, Jackie and Elaine are in for a surprise. I've just been sorting out my daughter's inheritance. Turns out that Whitney weren't Sharon's beneficiary at all. It was me. Dream on. You were divorced years ago. Shazza had a great big party to celebrate. Yeah, Kate, with your face on it, she cut it right down the middle. Oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you, ladies, but it appears that we're still legally binding. Till death us do part and all that. Turns out nobody ever applied for the decree absolute, which means that her share of this place passes directly on to little old me. Unless you want to buy me out. go for these sorts of shows even though it's i'm clearly not the target audience candy cabs is nothing extraordinary don't look for it on the baftas next year but it's a solidly written nicely performed drama the bbc is so good at making a staple of the kind of programming i expect to see on british tv 
And the next one is Campus. This Channel 4 comedy from the makers of Green Wing clearly wants to tap into that same level of zinginess by way of The Office. Have you ever seen Green Wing? No, I haven't seen that yet. Oh, okay. I'll put it on my list. On the list. <laughs> oh, well, poor Kelly's going to have so much homework after this. <laughs> no, it's uh, more like recommendations. There's things I want to see. I'm glad to hear about. The vice chancellor, Jaunty DeWolf, talks right to the camera, even though apparently no documentary is being made. He's probably insane. Nearly everyone else at Kirk University seems to have taken literally the advice that you don't have to be crazy to work here, but it helps. DeWolf, though, is no David Brent. Considering what he has to work with, he's an effective motivator, unlike what you would expect to see in a British comedy. He's also one of the worst human beings on the planet, as well as a terrible racist. The uni has been blessed with a best-selling author, Imogene Moffat, a mousy math teacher who has inexplicably written a massive bestseller called The Joy of Zero. DeWolf decides to implement a publish-or-perish doctrine to the rest of the staff, which disrupts the slacker philosophy of English professor Matt Beer. Beer spends most of the first episode trying to get someone to do the work for him, while the accounts manager, who has accidentally overpaid everyone, tries to find £600,000 to make up the shortfall. Campus debuted to low ratings last week, a sign perhaps that audiences have grown tired of this format. I've seen worse, but I'm going to give Campus a chance because of the quirky nature and just to see how far they'll go with DeWolf's character. He's pretty un-PC. Well, this week on Twitter, I complained that I won't get to see The Crimson Petal in the White for arcane reasons that it's a Canadian production. It's been decided, yes, it was made in Canada, even though it's completely starring Brits like Richard E. Grant and Romola Garay. Okay. And Irishmen. I'm hoping the CBC runs it, because uh, on cable here we get to have that. But I don't know if it's CBC or CTV or one of the uh, digital channels, but hopefully it will filter its way down. Because I wanted to see it. It sounded really good. And it was another Saturday with nothing worth watching. And I said, British TV, you're forcing me to read. And I said, seriously, though, I was working on the next podcast, which I think I did. But listeners Phil and Andrew have been telling me about a number of radio shows I should be listening to, including The Unbelievable Truth, which is hosted by David Mitchell and has had a bunch of people that we mm-hmm. enjoy on there. So I'm just so focused on TV, as I can't imagine why. It's hard to remember that other mediums are available. I didn't realize there was something out there with David Mitchell... Are you watching the 10 o'clock live? I haven't. I watched a few of it and decided I didn't like it and then decided that I did like it again. So I have a lot to catch up on, which is going to be fun because um, it won't be live. I have obviously, it'll be old news, but I love David Mitchell. So any of his, especially when he's playing David Mitchell, when he's not in a role, I seem to like him better as himself. So. And you know that he's a team captain on What I Lie to You, right? Oh, yes. Yes. I have watched all those. <laughs> I'm excited um, about that coming back. I've liked uh, 10 O'Clock Live. They don't quite know what to do with Lauren Laverne. Yes. Uh, Jimmy Carr does seem to be carrying a lot of the comedy stuff, because Charlie Brooker basically just does pieces to camera, you know, that he's obviously pre-scripted. Yeah. It's good, and and David kind of finds his groove there as the interviewer and his Listen to Mitchell segments, Mm -hmm. which are somewhat like his, he does video casts like those. Soapbox. Yeah, Soapbox. David Mitchell's Soapbox. It seems like every guest on our show is a big fan of David Mitchell. Must be some sort of rule. How can he not love David Mitchell? Actually, I know people who really don't like David Mitchell at all. Really? Why's that? <laughs> they just, what were the reasons they gave me? Oh, for the same reasons I love him. They, like, he's just an egotistic, snarky, you know, nothing ever nice to say kind of person. And I'm like, but he gets to say all the things that I don't but want to and in a humorous manner. Like, and he has big brown eyes. 
how can you not like him? <laughs> Do you think there's maybe a class or education thing? Because he's obviously university educated. I don't know. These are uh, these were definitely university educated people that were telling me this. I don't know. They're they're also very. Uh, I think. Uh, we don't like in others that which we see in ourselves. And they were sort of the same type of person ah, as him. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, fair enough. So the news this week, Catherine Tate will be appearing in the office. And that's a definite, right? Oh, yeah. I hadn't, I had not heard that confirmed. I'm very excited about that. Very excited. Yes. It was broken by Michael Asillo on uh, deadline. Yeah, as you know, star Steve Carell will be leaving the popular American version of The Office in a few weeks, and there is quite a bit of speculation, no doubt ginned up by the producers, about who will take over. Because uh, Will Ferrell is going to be a number of episodes, but you know he's not going to stick around. I hope he's, not. Well, he's got a movie career. He makes $20 million a movie. He's not going to be doing a sitcom, but he's going to yeah. be in a number of episodes. But they're going to have a number of famous faces will be seen interviewing for the post, including Catherine Tate and Ricky Gervais returning as his David Brent character. Uh, the Office is the only U.S. show I watch, really, aside from The Big Bang Theory, which is kind of just a little... I watched The Big Bang Theory for the first time last week because my wife had it on, and I could see why geeks like it. Mm-hmm. You don't watch 30 Rock, though? Um, occasionally I watch 30 Rock. I Actually, 30 I, Rock. Sort of, I sort of marathon 30 Rock now, and then when I have nothing else to do, I'll just put on three or four episodes in a row and catch up on it. I do, So I do like it, but... I love the absurdity, and to me, Alec Baldwin is comedy gold. Yes. Yeah, he's great. And at Tina Fey, of course, she's always good. She's always fun to watch. Um, but yeah, it's uh, what, since The Office is one of the few American shows I watch, I was really excited to hear that. I was like, don't even get your hopes up that Catherine Tate might take over that role because that would just be so exciting. I don't know if she'd be available or there'd be something to do. I, I have no idea how they even got on her. You would think that, oh, let's get someone in here. Oh, let's bring in Steve Coogan. Because he's got a presence over here, and you can just imagine him doing two minutes of partridge or something like that, trying to get the job, and just completely self-immolating. That would be great. But Catherine Tate's definitely a out-of-left-field kind of idea, but then you think, oh, yeah, Catherine Tate. I mean, we certainly know if she can deliver the goods. Oh, yeah, definitely. But they're keeping it very close to the chest about who will ultimately end up being the new boss. So this Would is they all... make her have to have an American accent, I wonder? Brent doesn't have one. Yeah, it's true. I don't know. I've, I've, have we heard Catherine Tate's American accent? I'm trying to remember. It seems like when they import someone into a U.S. show, so often they, especially into a company like Dunder Mifflin, it doesn't seem like they would have, a, I don't know, a British person out there in the middle of, um, where are they, Pennsylvania? No. Well, again, David Brent, you know, came across Steve Carell's character in one episode they met outside an elevator, and, you know, we got two minutes of Ricky doing his Brent stuff. Yeah, but I think that was sort of, like, specifically brought in for... But they didn't try to say, oh, Ricky, could you do it with an American accent? I mean... Right, but that was... Well, yes, but that's because... I felt like that was because he already was established as someone else in, in another version of The Office, so it was kind of a nod to the fans. And so, of course, they could keep him with a British accent, but... I mean, it would be a shame if they put Catherine Tate in a horrible wig and bad teeth and just kind of have her be weird and disgusting for 30 seconds and then just kind of, next. Oh, yeah. Because you'd be like, oh, you don't get to see the real Oh, no, I mean, if they take, if she were to take over permanently, would they, you know, I would think that whoever oh, takes over Steve Carell's spot, you know, is going to be an, Ameri- an American or an American you accent. You don't know that. No. I, I would hope not. I would, I would love to have her get it and be British, but... 
I mean, considering the fact that the show has its roots in England, they can't simply say, well, everything for Britain is crap. I mean, right. that would be very foolish. And Steve, I, mean, I, I do believe that Ricky Gervais is an executive producer. I mean, yes. I don't know how much say he's got in it, but surely he talks to them. And, yeah. you know, I'm sure when they, whoever suggested Catherine Tate, he was like, oh, yes, you know, she's, she's the real thing. Well, either way, it'll be a, a pleasure just to see her for a few minutes on it even. Yes, of course it will. Well, here's some big news. Robert Sheehan is leaving Misfits. I'm sure you so must have sad. some reaction to this. Yes, so sad. They're going to do the Hobbit as well. Or? Yeah, right. Well, he does have a film career. He, I, mean, oh. I don't know if you saw my tweet on Sunday. It was uh, I said I certainly hope that being in Season of the Witch didn't convince him to uh, quit Misfits. And I said Nick Cage it's, is not a good role model. I laughed at that. Yeah, I did. I was like, please don't um, <laughs> don't be leaving because Nick Cage uh, encouraged your movie career. Or, you know, encourage you to do movies with him. <laughs> That's not. On the other hand, I think Robert Sheehan is, is great. Did you watch the Red Riding trilogy? Um, I haven't. I saw him in Cherry Bomb, which was horrible. But he basically played his Nathan character, and he was brilliant. But the movie was terrible. But I haven't seen the that trilogy yet. I'm, I would like to. Um, he is a great actor, and I, I can understand why he wants to move on. But they're going to uh, write him off in a web episode. Yes. Which is, I think, is really inappropriate. Most of the fans think it's really inappropriate that he should at least get. You know, it, even if it's the first ten minutes of the first episode, a lot of people don't watch web episodes or even have access to them. Well, this is on E4. So. I mean, this is not even a terrestrial show. This is on a digital channel, and a lot of the show's promotion has been done through social networking. That's true. Yes, I there's, mean, been, I, there's I, been that argument. Yeah, this is not fandom. Fox News viewers who don't even understand what the internet is. I have to think that people watching Misfits are the plugged-in kind of people who are going to have access to the web. Yeah, you're probably right. There's just I've I've been on the the fan communities and a lot of people have been complaining about that that it shouldn't that his character not that it's carried the show, but it, he's really been sort of a central figure. It shouldn't just be killed off and or I guess I don't think he can be killed off. I don't know what's going to happen to him. That'll be interesting, but I saw they, a, a they sort don't. of spoiler, but I don't want to uh, Yes, don't say, say anything. <laughs> but, uh, well, of course, the last time we saw him, he'd kind of gotten a girlfriend and then they had a baby. Yeah. The Christmas episode. Yeah. And I kind of thought, well, what are they going to I mean, are they just going to say next week, "Oh yeah, she moved to Manchester or something," you know? Yeah. At least it kind of gives him a sort of out that he maybe goes off with her or something like that. But yeah, I was hoping she would stick around too, though. Uh, you know, my daughter loved Marnie. She was like, "Oh, their relationship was so adorable. It happened so fast." And I, but I, I loved her so much, and I hope she sticks around. And I'm like, no, neither of them are. <laughs> I remember seeing George R. R. Martin years ago, and he used to be a producer on Beauty and the Beast, and it sort of became a fait accompli that Linda Hamilton was going to leave the show. And the, but the show was going to keep going, and she's one of the title characters. I mean, it's all about her romance with you know, Ron Perlman's character, mm. Vincent. And so they're like, okay, well, we've got two options: we recast and just say, and now playing the part is this new actress, or we get rid of her and we bring in, try to introduce a new character to fill this once-in-a-lifetime sort of part. And he knew they were kind of screwed either way, but they decided to go with the. Well, let's kill her off and try to get the audience to love a new character. I remember watching that show, and I don't remember watching it after she was killed off. I don't, I couldn't tell you what happened. But I, I it was interesting her. seeing him kind of dissect it like a year after, where he could look back and say, you know, I mean, he obviously realized that mistakes were made, but he, in the way he described it, it was like at the time it seemed like we were making the right choices. You know, that we we couldn't just have a different actress show up the next week playing the character. 
and but yet we did alienate a lot of our fan base by killing off the love of her of his life and trying to bring in this other character to be the new love of his life. Yeah. You know, they were sort of screwed by the moment that Linda Hamilton said, I'm getting out of here. Which apparently she'd wanted to do since day one. She didn't want to do the series. She did the pilot because she'd said, there's no way this show's ever going to go to the series. And then it did. And she was basically locked into a five-year contract because she wanted to do movies. And she, and she, did not, she wasn't happy being there, but she had a contract. And what happened was when the network decided to only commission 13 episodes one year instead of a full thing, that meant they renegotiated everything, and so she was able to get out. And so that's when they realized, oh my gosh, our leading lady is leading the show. What are we going to do? So now you've got Howard Overman with Misfits, and Robert Sheehan has become too big for them. I mean, he's probably made more on a turkey-like season of The Witch than they ever paid him to be on an E4 series. Oh, definitely. So... That cast has such great chemistry off-screen, even, watching them joke around with each other, and it seems like they're so really close. I guess you obviously don't base your career decisions on that, but they, um, he's, he's got to miss them, and they're just, they all have so much chemistry together. Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, he'd be the upright guy and show up and, and do that. He's getting too big for Misfit. So we're in this world now where Nathan has to leave the show. And so, you know, what is the best way of doing that? Saying, oh, we're going to have this great dynamic new character. I think he's going to be called Rudy. Yeah, Rudy. And uh, you'll love him and all this sort of stuff. But, you know, I'm sure they've got to be crapping their trousers thinking, oh, man, you know. I mean, he, yeah, I agree with you. He probably was the best thing on the show. I, I loved every line he ever said. Yeah, and, and some people found him really obnoxious, though. But so, that was his point. Uh, but they found him obnoxious to the point where they didn't have that also, the equal love for the character. Uh, there, there's been, like I said, I've been on the, in the, on the fan communities, and some of them are like, oh, there are a few people that are like, I'm glad he's gone. Well, I mean, um, but, you know, he was meant to be an in-your-face obnoxious guy. Yeah. And, but he acknowledged that. That's what I think is that there's one thing to, like, on British comedies where having an obnoxious character who doesn't realize has no sense of self-awareness. Yeah, and he knew that he was an obnoxious guy. That was part of the fun of it. You know, yeah. he said those things. He knew he was pissing people off, and he did it anyway. Yeah, I, I loved the line when he said to Simon's character, um, "Hey, I'm the funny one here." When Simon finally started cracking jokes, it was a little meta there for you. Ewan, Ewan, how do you pronounce his Ewan. last name? Yeah, he's been showing up in a lot of shows. He was in the last Secret Call. Oh, you noticed him in that, yeah. yeah and he was, uh, in Grandma's house. Simon's Amstel's love interest in Grandma's house, that, which is a hysterical part. And it was funny too, though, because his character was supposed to be an actor who had run an, won an Olivier, and I thought was they filmed it probably about when he did actually win an Olivier for being in a musical. So that was fun. So we'll see if he's the next one to go off and. I mean, he's, That's what I'm thinking. He's an unusual-looking yeah. boy, but he's mm-hmm. appealing. And, of course, they make him look creepier than he really is on Misfits. Yeah. But. Yeah, it's funny how his character went from being um, so creepy to being so loved overnight mm-hmm. when he took his shirt off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Literally, I had people telling me, I don't really like this guy. Are you sure I should watch this show? He's creeping me out. And, you know, they were marathoning it. And two hours later, I got a text of, oh, Simon, I love Simon. I'm like, <laughs> season one yeah. Simon or season two Simon? Uh, season two Simon. Oh, Once yeah. he uh, became, yeah. The future, future Simon. I got spoiled for that from uh, oh. by the trending topics on Twitter. I was so mad. I thought I was being so careful. I didn't know what was going to happen. And then I look at the trending topics and it says future Simon. And I was like, no, I didn't want to know. I am going to be at a convention over Easter. And I'm going to be shooting a movie as Doctor Who goes out in England. 
And I'm basically going to just, you know, turn off my phone at that point. Yeah. I'm not going to look at it until I get home, probably about 4 o'clock on Sunday, and get a chance to watch the episode, because someone's going to spill the beans. And they have a right to after it's been broadcast. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's going to be on BBC America that night, too. So I'm the fool if I get on Facebook or Twitter Saturday night and see something I don't want to see. So I'm just going to get off the Internet. Yeah, you just have to avoid it. <laughs> Yeah, one of my favorite Nathan lines, I think it was really early, I, mean, I think it might have been the first episode where one of the characters says, I'm going to kick you so hard, your mother is going to feel it. And he goes, how does that work exactly? He has <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so many great lines, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you think you'd be horrified by someone being buried alive, and he was so nonchalant, he just was like, ah, well, this sucks, I'm just going to put on my iPod, and I just loved that ending so much. I'm couldn't wait to see what they did with it but that's that's the the great why i think the show is going to be fine without him though you know people are saying oh no it's never going to be able to make it without him and the way they write the characters is they're going to be fine well howard overman because he writes he's written all the scripts he did the dirk gently did you see that i heard of it but no Stephen mangan and uh, darren boyd and helen baxendale based on douglas adams mm-hmm. and they're gonna make more of those he's worked on merlin Misfits is his baby. It's kind of cool that it, it's, again, this show that's on a digital channel, but it pulls in really good numbers. Well, hopefully it will uh, make it in the post-Nathan era. Yeah. We hope so, because I mean, I'm really looking forward to the third series. I kind of would like to see, and some other people I've talked with have said the same, that, that Curtis's character really isn't used as much as it could be, and that I think that Nathan's probably outshadowed him a lot. It'd just be really interesting to see the other characters kind of take more center stage. Like, especially, I would really like to see more of Curtis. And, of course, he doesn't have his power anymore, though, does he? I was going to say I'd really like to see him use his power more, but... Well, we don't even know who's got what powers after... Wait, that's, yeah. We don't even know what they're going to get. Yeah. Power Lurette. Well, we'll be uh, discussing Misfits more in the future. More news. Uh, PBS's Masterpiece audience has increased nearly 45% over last year. In addition, their highlight of this 40th season, Upstairs Downstairs, was watched by an estimated 6.4 million viewers on Sunday based on Nielsen data from 53 metered markets. That would be good on network television. This is PBS, and so there obviously was a pent-up demand for uh, that. And the uh, speaking of Merlin, the season three finale on Sci-Fi Friday posted 1.9 million viewers, a series high, as well as 621,000 adults 18 to 49 which is the magic range that uh, everybody wants to get. And that's a show that gets virtually no promotion on sci-fi, you know, because this is something they buy cheap from the BBC and has done very well for them. And funnily enough, you know, in a very late night slot, I mean, it's on at 10 o'clock on Fridays, whereas it's traditionally on, in the Doctor Who slot on Saturday nights on BBC One. So Merlin does pretty well. I mean, I, I enjoy watching that. So what's on TV for the week of April 13th to the 19th? Wednesday, Life of Riley returns to BBC One. It's a sitcom starring Karen Quentin. Uh, the Crimson Petal and the White continues on BBC Two. Thursday, Dave's One Night Stand returns to digital channel Dave for second season opener, which features Chris Addison. You familiar with him? No. Mock the Week would probably be where you would have okay. likely have seen him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monroe concludes its run on ITV One. A History of Celtic Britain continues on BBC Two. Martina Cole's The Runaway continues on Sky One. And 10 O'Clock Live is on Channel 4. And, and their last episode will be on the eve of the royal wedding. And what a missed opportunity. They won't be able to uh, send that up afterwards. 
Will you watch the wet royal wedding at all, just to talk about it here, or? Uh, no, I didn't watch the last one for the fact that being here on the West Coast, it's about three o'clock in the morning. Well, they have a thing up at the Empress Hotel in Victoria where you can go and um, stay that weekend and then get up and go down to their big ballroom in your jammies and they'll serve breakfast foods and you can watch it on their big screen TV for royalists. So my mom thought that was funny, but we're not going. Well, ironically, I've had really bad insomnia lately. Mm-hmm. And I think Kelly has as well. Yeah. And so Maybe I, we'll be up anyway. <laughs> yeah, I might, but I, how, I mean, I wouldn't go to a real wedding. No. I find weddings boring and seeing one that's going to take forever and people I don't really care about. So I'm going to give the pass. But everyone in Britain gets a day off, so more power to them. Well, that's good, but I've just never been, as much as I love Britain, I'm just not interested in royalty. I've never been to the changing of the guards or anything like that, so I shan't watch it either. But I'll have a look at the dress if it shows up in a magazine. No chance of that happening. No. Celebrity Juice, all right, is on ITV2. And Russell Howard's Good News continues on BBC3. And you watch that, right? I do. I love Russell Howard. Yeah. What do you love about him? Oh, what does everybody love about him? He's every mom loves him. I think he's I'm like not a mom. he's like I don't know. Well, maybe you, you can love him for other reasons, but I think he's like uh, he's the he's the boy you hope your daughter brings home as a boyfriend. I don't know. He has a pleasing, uh, amused, funny personality that's not abrasive or over the top. It's like the way he delivers stuff. And this is his topical news show, right? Yeah, and it, just his comedy in general. But this is, this is yeah, this is top, his topical news show. Do you watch it on Thursdays, or do you wait for the extended version on Saturdays? Or do you watch both? Um, no, I don't watch the extended version. I I didn't even really know about it, so now I do. <laughs> Friday, Baboons with Bill Bailey continues in ITV1. Have I Got News for You on BBC One has guest host Stephen Mangan. Paul O'Grady Live returns to ITV One with guests John Cleese, Rupert Everett, and Charlotte Church. The second episode of David Williams' Awfully Good is on Channel 4 with a look at notorious TV adverts. Yeah, I'd read that the first one had really bad ratings, but I thought it was it was entertaining. I enjoyed it. Well, they made them, so they're going to show them. Well, Frank Skinner's Opinionated continues on BBC Two. The Graham Norton Show is back for its ninth season on BBC One with guests Catherine Tate and David Tennant. <laughs> what could they possibly be plugging? <laughs> They have a show coming out. On Saturday, extended editions of Russell Howard's Good News and Have I Got News for You are available on BBC Three and BBC Two, respectively. Sunday, Time Team continues on Channel Four. Lewis continues on ITV One. Monday, The Dales continues on ITV One. Also on ITV One is The Reckoning, a two-part thriller that concludes Tuesday. Ashley Jensen plays a woman whose daughter needs an expensive brain operation in America and is offered five million pounds if she kills a man who deserves it. 2012 finishes its run on BBC Four. Tuesday, Candy Cabs continues on BBC One. Campus continues on Channel Four. White Van Man concludes on BBC Three. In the United States, it's Repeatville on BBC America this week. Wednesday, there's reruns of The Tudors. Friday, Law & Order UK goes back to its first season. And repeats of Top Gear on Monday. On Showtime, Secret Diary of a Call Girl continues on Thursday. Sunday, on most PBS stations, Masterpiece has part two of the new Upstairs, Downstairs. DVD releases. 
The BBC's Tudor collection is a combination of several classic dramas, including Shadow of the Tower from 1972, The Six Wives of Henry VIII from 1971, and Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson. Uh, Doctor Who, Kinda. Peter Davison stars in this 1982 surreal adventure on a jungle planet, battling a creature that has taken over Tegan's mind. And the sequel story, Snake Dance, is also available. And they were released as a box set in Britain, but are separate titles in North America. Last of the Summer Wine, Vintage 1988 and 1989. More episodes of the long-running geriatric BBC sitcom. The Last Place on Earth, a 1985 ITV dramatic miniseries about the race to the pole with an all-star cast, including Martin Shaw, Hugh Grant, and Sylvester McCoy. The Road to Coronation Street. This excellent biopic about the origins of the venerable soap opera stars David Dawson as Tony Warren and his tribulations in getting the series on the air in 1960s Manchester. This is a must-see for anyone interested in the early days of television or how one of the most long-running and famous British TV shows very nearly never happened. And finally, the Sweeney The Complete series has been released. The 1970s were never so cool or violent as this John Thaw, Dennis Waterman police series from ITV. See two great ITV icons bust heads and get the crap kicked out of them as well in this classic program. You ever seen the Sweeney? No. Do you know the theme song? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know me, you know, Chrissy, right? Da 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 I only know David Walliams' version of it. No, I think I've heard him. Right. He sang it um, they, when he, Dennis Waterman stormed the stage of a Little Britain live performance and sang it for their comic relief. So I think I have heard it. So meanwhile, we'd like you to uh, go to our website, which is www.britishtvpodcast.com. And there you can find links to headlines, show notes, what's on TV this week, and an archive of our previous 78 shows. And you can follow me on Twitter at BritTVPodcast.com. Do you want people following you, Kelly, or not? No. No. Don't follow <laughs> Kelly, then. You can send us feedback, if you like this episode, to feedback at BritishTVPodcast.com. So we'll be, uh, Chrissy and I will be back next week, and Kelly's back if she wants to come back, or I don't know. I'll think about it. She'll think about it. Okay. <laughs> if she's awake. We'll talk about Carolyn Quentin, and there's some sci-fi show is coming back next week. And David Tennant has a TV movie as well about football. That might convince me to come back. Well, we want to see it. We'll just be previewing it for people. But we're just talking about it. <laughs> well, if you want to come back after the first episode of Doctor Who, that's, uh, that's great. Because that'll be in two weeks' time. Yeah. Or, or we can wait till the bo- two part, both parts have shown. Because, you know, maybe it's one of those episodes where part one's fabulous and part two just completely... Oh, wait, no, RTD's not ready in the show anymore. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Okay. Well, didn't you say you're waiting for Stephen Moffat to kind of uh, crash and burn? Yeah, so I have something to complain about? Sure. I hated The Beast Below, and I loved uh, The 11th Hour, So, and he wrote The Beast Below, which was the second episode of the last series of Doctor Who. I just was so upset. So if I have an outlet for venting, if that happens, that's great. <laughs> and you can do it in more than 140 characters. <laughs> yes. I'm rewatching the fifth season now just because I got the box set for Christmas and, and also to kind of get into the mood for uh, season six here. And so it's the first time I've seen these since last summer. Yeah, Beast Below is kind of meh. It's not as bad as I, I still think the weak point is Victory of the Daleks. 
I, that's a point of contention among the fans I, I talk to is which is worse. And so, uh, quite a few people tend to like Victory of the Daleks. Um, what, what do you I think? Feel, I'm, I'm a little neutral about it. I just, I don't know. With the Mini Cooper Daleks. <laughs> but we all like the Pandora opens the Big Bang, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, so one turkey is forgivable, I guess. Yes. They can't all be Blake. All right. Okay, well, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here, Kelly. And thank you for having we'll me. See some, none, or all of you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.